The first is narcissism. The second trait of it is Machiavellianism. And then the last trait is psychopathy. I studied this concept of these individual differences, these personality traits that everyone possesses at some level and how they can actually help someone advance in their career or how they might uh, impede somebody in their career and how it might be that the success sows the seeds of their own failure. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, I want to stop and take a moment just to recognize you and welcome you into the Kelly family because we exist to help you, your leadership, and your organization grow. So, If you're wrestling with a question as a leader, maybe you don't know uh, what to do with a specific business decision, maybe you're looking to overhaul uh, your organization's culture, or you're looking to take a risk and you just want some input for some of our faculty, um, or you know of a great individual who would make an awesome guest for our show, send us an email to ROIPod, that's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. So how many of us can go to work every single day? You know, we have that person that may sit next to us. We have that person that's on our team. Maybe we had that boss who is just so driven. You know, they're, they're working extremely hard. They're really, really pushing the bar. And they, I mean, they have their foot on the gas and there just does not seem to be any let up. Yet, you know, it, it may not be the bad thing that they're, you know, pushing so hard, but when we really get to the heart of it at times, there just seems to be a friction of sorts. You know, they maybe they just don't feel like they mesh within the team. There's something uh, something about this individual or this group of individuals that they just, they don't feel like they want any buy-in for the organization. They're only in it for themselves, but yet they're the ones getting promoted. They're the ones doing a lot of hard work. And it's so hard because you have this how do we deal with these people? How do we deal with this individual? Or maybe, maybe you look in the mirror and you realize, man, that person's me. Like I'm just in this for myself and I'm not really buying into the team. Well, on this episode, we're going to explore some of these traits, some of these traits that help people get so far in their career, but yet can be the same traits that ultimately burn them out and they come down crashing spectacularly. I'm honored today to be joined by our guest, Ernest O'Boyle, a Dale Coleman Chair of Management and Professor of Organizational Behavior in the Kelly School of Business. Ernest, welcome to the ROI Podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Matt. So you have this really interesting uh, research you've been doing, and I wanted you to you know, set it up uh, because I try to do my best to you know, really get a sense of what you're doing, but you're talking about this concept of the maladaptive tribe. So let's get into, you know, your research and, you know, what these traits that, you know, individuals have that ultimately get them so far in business, but yet ruin them if they don't keep it in check. Sure. And um, the constellation of traits that we're talking about or that I study and, you know, when people ask me, you know, what do you research? I always tell them, say, I, I study evil. I'm interested in bad stuff. Like that's just what attracts me. So I study bad personality traits. I study bad workplace behaviors. I look at bad organizations and cultures and norms and those sorts of things. 
But the one that has always drawn me the most is this concept of these individual differences, these personality traits that everyone possesses at some level and how they can actually uh, help someone advance in their career or how they might uh, impede somebody in their career and how it might be that the success sows the seeds of their own failure. So the constellation of traits I do most of my research on is called the dark triad of personality. And it consists of three traits. The first is narcissism. And I think that's one we have a pretty good feel on. You know, this is the somebody who has a very grandiose. Usually, they're they are they are uh, try to project a big uh, vision. They try to be the center of attention. Uh, that's kind of our quintessential narcissist there. And you can kind of think of their ego as an overfilled balloon. It's really really big, but it's also really sensitive. Uh, one one needle prick, and they're they they explode. Um, that's the first trait. The second trait of it is psych, or as I'll still go in order, uh, Machiavellianism. So Machiavellianism is, if you've the the term does date back to the actual philosopher. Uh, so this is Machiavelli. He's writing at a time that's pretty intense in Italian politics, uh, the Venetian politics, and he's talking about how would you navigate the world where you present yourself in one way but you have these ulterior motives and you're kind of the, the, the godfather, you have your hands on the strings and you're controlling everything behind. So a somebody high in Machiavellian doesn't want to be president. They want to be chief of staff. They want to be the person who is the real power behind the face. So with Machiavellianism, we got three components to it. The first is agency. So these are the achievement strivers, the one that Matt, what you were talking about, the ones that these are the, the hard drive and folks like that, a lot of activity, a lot of assertiveness. Uh, and then you have this antagonism component to it, which is pretty problematic because this is where we get into our emotional manipulation, uh, all of our, uh, uh, our cynicism. And then we also have this planfulness component to it. These are people that can delay their gratification for quite some time. So you can see how that might play out, that they're fine being almost, they could be publicly ridiculed and it's fine to them because they're, but they're keeping score in their head. And they know that one day the opportunity is going to come to get back at that person. So these are individuals that can hold a grudge for decades if need be. Uh, and then the last trait is psychopathy. So psychopathy, this is probably the most, uh, one that gets confused the most. It's so conflated now with Hollywood movies, with your Hannibal Lecters and when uh, Dexters and what have you. We're not talking about people like that. These, these people typically don't end up in a lot of organizational board meetings and what have you. But these uh, individuals that are high in psychopathy, not clinical, but high in psychopathy, are going to be on two factors. All these traits are multifaceted, and I'm fine to unpack them as much or as little as you'd like to today, Matt. Uh, but in terms of psychopathy, we're really talking about two factors, two primary ones. So primary psychopathy, factor one, this is going to be all of the emotional manipulation, all of that flat affect. They do not fluctuate in their emotions very much. It's, they don't, the highs aren't that high and the lows aren't that low. And we can actually put them under an fMRI machine and we can see that they're not, they're, they're not responding to stimuli the way that you and I would, presuming that we're both not psychopaths. Uh, the secondary factor, though, that's the impulsivity. That's the wild factor. 
So they, they tend to be disorganized. They tend to uh, be somewhat antisocial, engage in a lot of risky type behaviors. So I worked in corrections for a number of years. When we had somebody that was, uh, that was classified as a psychopath, usually it's that second factor that puts uh, the, that lengthens the rap sheet. But it's that first factor that usually gets them the really bad charges. The ones that they that's that's where they get into the the more severe type stuff in a workplace. You're not going to see as much of that as at at extreme levels, but you're still going to have people that are higher than you on psychopathy and lower than you on psychopathy. And that goes for all the traits. So that's really kind of how do we understand what these traits are doing and how do we understand not just how they affect that person's career, but how they affect the careers of everybody around them. So that's the, that's in general, that's a very long uh, description of how I approach this dark triad research. And I think you made a really good point. I just want to emphasize is that this is not, you know, we're not talking about individuals in your organization who should be locked up at Rutgers Island, you know, like, I mean, that, that's a whole new can of worms. I mean, if you're, if you're dealing with an individual at that degree, or, you know, that has like serious, um, uh, mental health issues at this point, you know, that that's a whole nother topic, but this is, I mean, you know, like the subtle personality traits, cause we all do have little tendencies toward this. You know, some of us have a little more narcissism than others or a little psychopathy more than others, or, you know, the Mac, Machiavelli or Machiavelli traits than others. And I think that's an important thing. So let's kind of bring it down into the workplace. You know, let's, let's start, you know, we, we have the great, I've, I've watched, you know, these TV shows and they portray whether it's the Joker, whether, whether that's Dexter, whether that's, you know, all these super villains, you know, we watch on TV time and time again. We're like, oh, you say psychopathy. I know I can put a character to that right away, you know? And so to kind of break some of that mold, when we hear these words, talk about what this looks like in, in the workplace. What are some examples of each of these traits that might show themselves um, just in everyday business? Let's start with the, the narcissist because they can be a little bit easier. A narcissist can be somebody that's completely aloof from everybody else. They see themselves as better than everybody in the organization. Therefore, they don't invest much into it. They're just kind of, you know, I'm doing this until, the, until a job that suits my purpose arrives. That's one type of narcissistic reaction to it. But another type of narcissistic reaction is my company is a reflection of me. I am great, therefore my company must become great. And they become, the company becomes them. It's a reflection of them. So they will do everything in their power to get that company. Yeah, I think, you know, Steve Jobs did a wonderful, did a lot of wonderful things. I'm carrying around a lot, I'm I'm talking on a Mac. I got a lot of uh, his products, but he was a narcissist. You know, when he presented, he didn't design an iPhone, but you better believe he's the one that's going to present it to everybody else out there. And he, you know, he, that sort of ego got him in trouble. Like he was, if you don't know too much about the story, like he deliberately separated his workers into two groups, one working on this product called Lisa, which is kind of a traditional uh, personal computer at the time. And then this Macintosh group. And he pitted them against each other and would actively antagonize them to the point that they were having fistfights at company picnics. Now, they're all a bunch of nerds, so it's not going to be nobody's getting hurt here. But it's at the same time you're talking about fights here. They printed off shirts 120 hours and loving it because that's how much he was driving his people. 120 hours out of the week, you should be working because I'm working 120 hours minimum and walking through his workplaces at 3 a.m to see if anybody, not just if people were there, but if they were sleeping, 
because you're not supposed to be sleeping. If you're at work, you work. So that sort of, you can see, okay, well, one could be somebody completely detached from their profession, from the job, from the people they're working with. And in another case, somebody that's completely obsessed with that position. Uh, both of them are problematic, right? One's going to affect all your team cohesion because they're not engaging the rest of the group. And the other one is going to place these expectations out there. And uh, did has anyone called an ROI covered the four burner? Uh, no, okay, well, we have not. Narcissist can have a tendency to go four burner, which is if you've never worked on an old gas stove before, you know that if you turn on all four burners that you get a little bit of heat off all of them. The four burner theory is your life is composed of four burners and it's your profession, it's your family, it's your health, and it's your occupation. Well, if you've ever worked on that old gas stove before, you know, if you turn off one of those burners, the others will heat up a little bit more because the gas line is now feeding just three burners. Four burner theory is if you want to get good at your job, turn off one of the other burners. If you want to get great at your job, turn off two of the burners. And if you want to be the best at your job, turn off three burners. That's four burner theory. It's a theory, unfortunately, a lot of successful people have in terms of professional success, but it is not viable. It's not good. It's not a good life approach uh, whatsoever. And it's something that a narcissist can sometimes engage in because they may view the occupation as the most front facing part of me. And especially in a culture like in the American culture, if you meet somebody at a bar with the second or third question that person's going to have is, what do you do? And they're not asking you what you do in your off time, whether you like disc golf or anything. They're asking you what you do for a living. So narcissists can tend to go for burner pretty quick and expect everybody else around them to do the same. Machiavellians are much more tricky. Mocks are really good in unstructured environments. And it's environments where there's a lot of uncertainty, mocks step into that role uh, extremely well because they're very good at emotional manipulation and they're very good at reading the room and planning. So that Machiavellian could be somebody on the team that's a very rah, rah, we're, you know, we're all a team, we're all in this together. They will burn it down if they get the opportunity to do something that benefits them. They are inherently, of the three, I would probably say Machiavellians are the most selfish of that group. They're always thinking of them and what, what is best for them. So when cohesion, when harmony works for them, they foster it. And when factionalism works for them, they foster that. In a social network analysis, you know, all those circles and ties and everything's like that, Machiavellians are like those um, uh, bonsai pruners. They're very particular about what kind of connections they have and who they connect with. And they are always keeping a towel. A friend isn't a friend the way that you and I think of a friend. A friend is a set of resources, a set of favors, either that I may owe them or they may owe me. So they're all, it's that ledger quality to them. Uh, somebody high in psychopathy. Uh, it depends on uh, how much they enjoy it because they are hedonistic. So if they like their work, they can go along with it for a pretty long time. They can be part of the group. They can, uh, they do tend to be a little flat on the affect side of things. Uh, but if they're high in that uh, factor one, it can actually be a really good thing because they don't respond to emergencies with panic. If it's, even if it's, we don't need to talk about CEOs. We talk about a server during a lunch rush. Certain psychopathic qualities could benefit that person. 
because they're not going to get flustered by it. However, on that impulsivity side of it and the antisocial side of it, this is also the person that is willing to steal money out of the register just with knowing that they're being recorded. They don't care. They can they just get to that point where they do those sorts of things. And in a team environment, they are going to be your wild card and kind of that uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Ever seen it? It's uh, yeah, you don't want a wild card on your team. And unfortunately, uh, a, somebody high in psychopathy is a wild card for sure. And that's something interesting. I mean, I hope it, I hope it comes across to our listeners is, you know, you can see how some of these traits do set you off, you know, like taking the, the narcissism for instance. I mean, when you get hired on and you're like this go getter out the gate and, you know, you're bought into the company and you just own it. But to your four burner point, that's all they're burning on. I mean, to a point, yeah, you're going to see growth. You're going to see like people like that fire just going to get contagious to a point. And then just like with every other trait, there's going to be that you're going to hit the peak and then you're coming straight down because gravity is not your friend, especially with some of these traits, you know, and blow up spectacularly um, as you know, you've kind of painted out where this eventually goes when you're burning and you're up at three in the morning, like Steve jobs. I never knew that, but you know, the fact that he's going in to check to see if people are sleeping, I mean, that becomes a level of, whoa, man, like that is, that is over the top. Oh, it, it, can, it can take you in so many bad directions. So, it, and I, I've dwelled, I'll stop picking. I don't like to speak ill of the <laughs> dead. Uh, but with uh, Steve Jobs, I'll also say that it, it can drive you to engage in counterproductive work behavior too, or workplace deviance, as we call it. And in some cases, you can make a case that it's outright fraud. So, for example, that very famous debut of the iPhone in San Francisco after 2000 something or another, uh, Steve Jobs had the programmers go in and change all of the iPhones to show full bars, no matter what the reception was. The iPhone at that time was freezing up so much when you switched apps. If you can watch it, he's doing some sleight of hand. He's got about seven or eight iPhones under the table and he's switching them out as one freezes and he goes up to the next one. So now the iPhone eventually did work. And that's awesome that it worked. And like I said, I have one sitting on my desk right now. But if I take those same sort of behaviors and talk about it as a blood testing machine at Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, well, how much of those, the, the fraudulent, fraudulent displays that she was doing in her talks mirror Steve Jobs? How much of it, though, is that the ends justify the means? One ended up working and one didn't. So as a result of that, one person is a visionary, the other person is soon to be a felon. That's it. So to that, to that end that, yes, the narcissism or some of these other dark traits, they begin to encompass you. I'm glad you used the term uh, friend because the, for the narcissist, they're their own worst enemy. Because what a narcissist is also doing is trying to, they do not like being handled. They feel they're above the, ro- the rules and above the law. So they're often snipping all of those checks and balances that organizations put in place, things like a board of directors. They want a very weak board, and they also want something called CEO duality. They want to be the chairperson of the board as well as the CEO, and that way they control the big 
organizational decisions, the strategic direction that traditionally a board might handle more of, as well as day-to-day operations, which is something that the CEO is going to handle. So they get rid of all those checks and balances. And what they don't realize is many of those checks and balances were the very things that was keeping their narcissism from ruining them and from ruining the organization. So let's take this into a practical, you know, environment. Let's start with, as our listeners know who've been a long time, and for those who are new, you know, we do believe in a philosophy of if an organization needs to change or wants to change, an organization leader wants to implement this change, it does first start with the leader. So we're going to take the approach from, as a leader, how do I recognize this in myself? How do I manage it? How do I work on it? So that I can recognize it within my team and I can expect them to elevate themselves too, because that's that's a healthy way of doing it. You know, you can't expect change in your organization if you yourself aren't willing to be the change first. So when these traits, you know, in regards to identifying these traits within ourselves, I mean, a lot of times people either don't want to hear, they know and they don't want to know it. They just kind of like, I know I'm this way and I'm just not going to address it. Or they're so blinded by some of these traits that they have no idea that this, this is what they're doing, or this is the way it comes across to others. So from an organizational leader perspective, how can, you know, we as organizational leaders begin to look in the mirror and identify this within ourselves? And then where do we start to start putting some balances and identify within ourselves? That's a great question. Best practices are best practices. So what I mean by that is, If somebody is leaning into narcissism, they recognize that through probably, which it's hard, narcissists are terrible at introspection, but if they get to the point where they are able to start to reflect and say, you know, my ego is driving some of these behaviors clearly. Well, if we go and take best practices and for example, group decision-making, okay, so I'm going to follow these practices and by doing so, it will actually curb the effect of the narcissism. So for example, in a group decision-making context, the leader should not be talking. They should be the last one to speak in that room because everybody knows that their position power is going to be, it doesn't matter how many people are in that brainstorming session. As soon as the leader says, this is my preference, all of a sudden that becomes everybody else's preference. So if you engage in some of the best practices of brainstorming uh, or group decision-making, All right, well, first thing that we're going to do is everybody's going to write down their uh, five of their ideas, and we're just going to put them on post-it notes. We're going to come back and combine all the post-its. Nobody knows whose idea is whose. We'll have one person that kind of helps facilitates. It won't be me. And we start to group these ideas together. We build off of them. Once we start to go down that route, separate again. So that constant idea of pulling your people apart, bringing them back together, allows for a lot of the self-censoring that often occurs when you have a narcissistic leader, when you have a powerful person at the top, you get a lot of self-censorship among the people. You also get a lot of sycophants. Narcissists are great at projecting vision. So you get a lot of people that are, are going to be yes men and yes women. As a narc- If a narcissistic leader recognizes, hey, this is what is starting to happen. I'm noticing that we're not having any sort of conflict in our meetings. And past conflict, conflict is a good thing. I call it campfire conflict. You don't want no conflict. That's the fire going out and everybody freezing to death. You also don't want to set the forest on fire. You want that right amount of task conflict. A narcissist may have a tendency to not want the conflict when it's their idea that's 
creating conflict, to recognize that in the self and say, no, best practices and decision making is I need to stay out of this for now. I'm going to, if I need to, I'll put on my phone 15 minutes, a timer, and I can't talk for that 15 minutes. A narcissist can't, or anybody, any leader can do these sorts of things uh, to start to figure out ways to make sure that their trait isn't over dictating their behavior. So even if I recognize some Machiavellian tendencies in myself, there are strategies that I can take that are going to help with that. For example, actually laying out that org chart and laying out that social network that goes with it and saying, Liz, I'm the one that's controlling all the information that's going from here to here. It's great that I have a lot of power, but at the same time, if this organization is going to go up further, then it needs to start running more efficiently. Information needs a freer flow of ideas there. So what I'm going doing with a Machiavellian, either as myself, if I recognize that in me, or if I'm leading a Machiavellian, I'm leveraging agency theory. I'm trying to align their goals with the organization's goals. So if part of the organization's goals is going to be uh, more cross-functionality, then I need to make sure that, that Machiavelli, it's in that Machiavellian's interest to have more cross-functionality. So I'm going to figure out ways to potentially incorporate him or her as maybe the conduit so that they start to be able to, hey, listen, I'm going to let you keep that tie between those two groups, but I'm adding four new ties to this. And at the end of the year, I'm going to evaluate the level of cross-functionality, and that's going to be part of your bonus system. Could start to align the incentives and the goals of that person with the goals and incentives that the organization provides. And all of a sudden, we get somebody who's not scheming for themselves only, they're scheming for the organization, which may not sound, it may not be a good thing, you know, not a bad choice of words there, but you get the idea that now they're taking all of that planfulness, all that delayed gratification, all that assertiveness and drive, and they're Although maybe selfish, they're doing this for themselves. And the side effect is it's benefiting the organization. You know, and that's what I think a great way to set up where we want to go next. You know, as an organization leader, what do you, how do you lead people uh, that have higher tendencies in any three of these um, than, than, you know, just how do you work with them? Because, you know, one thing you said, and I want you to unpack before we started recording was this idea of, you know, it's so easy for an organizational leader to say, forget it. This person is going to be too much work, too much time. Just let them go and we'll fill their seat with someone else that's not like that. But you were kind of making an argument that maybe we should delay that for a, for a bit longer to really work on them because there could be some uh, good traits from it or if, if harnessed correctly or worked with correctly, could be a star employee uh, for your team. So talk about that. Like how now as an organizational leader, do we begin to manage and begin to uh, lean in and walk beside our team better so that they can you know, better themselves and start putting barriers or, or boundaries uh, on their own tendencies? That tendency to say, this is a bad trait, therefore it must be a bad person, is not a good strategy. Uh, the trait is only a tendency, a proclivity to engage in a certain way. I'm not going to sit down with this person and say, because you're high in this trait, that means that you're never going to be a successful worker here. In terms of, I refer to them often as black holes. There's certain types of employees that are just, they're sucking a lot of resources down. And unfortunately, a lot of black holes have crossover with these dark personality traits that we found. 
but there are ways to leverage them. A narcissist is the easiest person in the world to manipulate. All you got to do is feed the ego. Just tell them they're great and tell them what they're doing is great or what they could be doing is even, you know, your real glory is going to come when you're able to get this goal met that the organization has. So they're, uh, narcissists are pretty easy. Machiavellians are more, a little more difficult because you actually have to help them uh, align their strategy and strategy is something they try to typically keep covert. They don't want people to know what their end game is. But if you can start to feel out, all right, I see this is the direction you want to go. Let me see if I can't get you, if by going in that direction, there might be an organizational benefit there. But the problem with all of these folks, and even setting aside the bad traits, let's just talk about we have a bad employee. Uh, and that can come in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different types of black holes out there. But the problem that most managers and most leaders have is they don't understand that for a black hole, extrinsic motivators don't work well. And the reason why we know they don't work well is you're giving them extrinsic motivators, compensation, rewards, all those things, and as well as punishment, as well as uh, punitive type issue, uh, writing them up, things like that. Those are all extrinsic motivators. And we know they're not working with this black hole because they're a black hole. You have already tried these things. By taking away the intrinsic, by taking away the carrot and stick, that empties the toolbox of the vast majority of leaders out there. That's all they have. That's, and that's, that really does create some problems. So an average manager does look at a black hole. And first off, they always assume the cause. They, uh, the typical manager is going to say, oh, it's because this person's lazy. It's because their personality is bad. It's because they, you know, they are cocky or whatever it may be. They then try to treat the symptom. So we got somebody out there that's a bully. We got somebody that's getting into other people's face. So what, do, what does the leader do? Hey, you can't do that anymore. Uh, and then go around and try to mend fences with the others. Hey, you know, you, Jack is getting has had a really bad day here. I'm sorry about that. I told him he's not allowed to do it again. Very tip of treating the symptom of it. It's the definition of insanity because they are going to try to do the same thing over and over and expect to turn this person around versus good leaders recognize comorbidity. Good leaders recognize, okay, this is probably a multifaceted problem here that there are, it's have a lot of interrelated context here. Um, a good leader identifies the root cause. What's driving this? A narcissist can be quite the bully. A narcissist can be a hothead who's exploding at people, who's just really, well, the root cause of that probably isn't so much the narcissist, the grandiose side of it. It's the narcissist that's the vulnerable side of it, the anxiety side of it. Can we do something about that anxiety? Can I make the start to build this person's confidence up so I can take that ability that they have that is the grand vision that they can project and the hard drive that they have and get that directed back to the company as opposed to directed in maladat or uh, uh, abusive supervision or workplace deviance types directions. Uh, Fostering the intrinsic motivation, I want to sit down, what would motivate you? As a, as a leader, as somebody who's uh, managed folks in the, I've, uh, in the past, I find it's always a very powerful exercise to sit down and be like, well, what exactly motivates you? And then look exact at what I'm doing to try to motivate this person and realize I'm completely misaligned. That their intrinsic motivation is coming from vastly different aspects, or what I'm trying to do is not resonating with them whatsoever. Um, and then, of course, playing the long game. Good leaders recognize, hey, that was a bad, this person did something bad, but if this isn't 
meeting the threshold of immediate termination or something like that, I'm going to try to turn this person around by coaching, by working with them and seeing if we can't take these traits that are projecting them or giving them this proclivity to these types of behaviors. Can I potentially take that trait and guide it back into a more productive area? Again, Ernest O'Boyle, Dale Coleman, Chair of Management and Professor of Organizational Behavior in the Kelly School of Business. Ernest, thank you so much for sharing such an interesting topic and such an insightful look into leadership. Well, thank you very much. It was great uh, having an opportunity to speak with you today, and I would love to come back and talk more either about these, uh, these bad people, these bad organizations, or various other bad things. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.